Good morning, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. We'll be starting in John chapter 11 today, verse 45, John eleven forty-five. And as you're turning there, just a reminder to those who are watching online, we will be having communion at the end of the service. So if uh, you want to participate with us, have some bread and some juice, you can join us for communion at the end of the service. John 11, chapter 45, as we continue our journey through John's gospel. I can remind you that uh, Lazarus has just been brought back from the dead. In verse 45, we read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our station. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. May the Lord add his blessing at the hearing and the reading of his word this morning. Well, several years ago, when my oldest two kids were in high school, My middle daughter was on the soccer team, 
And during practice, she was running stairs at the Vicksburg High School, and she hurt her ankle rather severely. And uh, so we were tending to her and icing her ankle. And the evening of the injury, I received a phone call from her coach. Her coach called and said, hey, I heard that Abby got hurt. And um, uh, I was concerned about her, and I, I want you to know that if you'd like, uh, I can come over to your house and I'll, I'll bring my wand with me. I said, what? No, I, I could come over to your house and I'll, I'll bring my wand. I have a zero energy wand and, and we can wave that over her ankle and it can uh, restore all the molecules in her ankle back to the way they were before they were injured. And uh, first of all, I never heard of whatever this is. And I said, boy, you know, thank you. Thank you for your generosity, your kindness about wanting to do that for us. But we serve a, a big God, and we know that, she'll, that God will heal our daughter in time, and she'll be fine. Well, well don't you want her to get better? Well, well, of course we do, but we believe God will heal her. Turns out another girl had actually got hurt too, and she got wanted, and and my daughter got healed first. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> With things like that, we often wonder, why do people believe the things they believe? Why do some people follow one religious leader over another? Why do some people follow after sometimes seemingly crazy notions? For a Muslim, the hope is that somehow through performance and submission to Allah, Along with keeping the five pillars of the faith, they will find favor with Allah and perhaps be granted mercy and eternal bliss in the afterlife. For the Hindu, the hope is to perform duty in life in such a way as to build good karma so a person can return in a higher state in the next life. Or even better for them to finally reach moksha, that's ultimate release, where a person ultimately reaches Brahman, finally becoming one with all things. Or for the Buddhist, the hope is to understand the four noble truths and to follow the eightfold path in such a way, again, building good karma as to reach nirvana where the ultimate release from desire is achieved. For a Confucianist, the goal is to maximize societal and familial order, conformity, and harmony with the hope of having a meaningful existence in this life. For the Taoist, who longs to keep balance in life through resisting the desire to interfere with the alignment, natural order of things. Of course, for the new ager, my wand-wielding friend, they look to find alignment with the universe through the spiritual energy found in stones and crystals, ultimately seeking to find transformation and, and healing in this life and oneness, oneness with an impersonal Mother Earth. However, Christianity is completely different than all these faith systems and religions in a huge way. In a word, what ultimately drives our faith in Christ is love. In particular, it's the love of Christ toward us that transcends all things by its sacrificial nature and moves us to respond to him with hearts that are full of thanksgiving and devotion because of who he is as the God of all creation, what he has done for us through laying down his life for us so that we may find ours. The Apostle Paul wrote in 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And because of his great love for us, we now have a living hope wherein we will spend eternity with him. What we're talking about today are the sacrifices of love. Today we're going to see three spiritual truths from this passage as we see Mary's devotion to Christ. Love is what inspires our outrageous generosity. Devotion is what motivates our complete humility, and commitment is what energizes our enduring faith. Our love, devotion, and commitment to Jesus will always lead us to quietly serve him and to freely give with a complete humility and enduring faith. Well, as we begin to unpack this by way of introduction, the way to understand this passage, we're going to start with that verse 45 in chapter 11. And Tim, we're going to be going through these uh, several verses on the front end of this before we even get started, just so we understand where we are. As we said initially, there were many people who believed in Jesus. That's what it said in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. But some attempted to undermine Jesus' ministry. In verse 46 it says, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so a conspiracy developed to kill Jesus. Now, under this conspiracy, notice the religious leader's frustration. In verse 47 it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Pharisees had been annoyed by Jesus for quite some time, but now the ruling party that included the chief priests from the party of the Sadducees were becoming very annoyed. You see, Jesus just raised a man from the dead, but the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. And not only was Jesus cutting into their monetary interests at the temple works, where everybody's going out to Jesus and not to the temple, But Jesus was now clearly teaching a doctrine that was inconsistent with their own rhetoric and dogma. Further, further notice their fear in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It turns out these Sadducees, these Pharisees, they feared Rome way more than they feared God. Then, out of the blue, notice this prophecy from Caiaphas. One of them, it says, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people. Well, that's an interesting concept. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Here he receives some sort of prophecy, and the prophecy is, kill Jesus. Here Caiaphas unwittingly hoped that Jesus' death would bring political security and stability over against the Romans. In other words, if we put down Jesus' religious uprising, surely that will demonstrate to Rome that we are committed to Rome. And Roman rule. Notice Jesus' caution, having come to know about this. 
In verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Remember, for Jesus, there's two things he's always got his eye on. There's two possible problems he might run into. One is they, the people might come and make him king right away, or they might put him to death too soon. And so he steers clear of these Jews. Things were becoming very dangerous, and Jesus knew it. <clears throat> Notice the circumstances, too. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews. This is springtime now. The Passover was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, well, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Again, he's kind of disappeared. He's kind of hiding away a little bit. Is he going to come? Isn't he? It's Passover. Many people were there, and many with a keen curiosity. But notice the edict put forward by the chief priests in verse 57. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. It was now against the law not to report Jesus' whereabouts. This had become a very tense and dangerous situation, not only for Jesus, but for his disciples as well. So in the midst of all this, are you ready? In the midst of all this is going, all this tenseness taking place, let's have a dinner party. Verse 1, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, just east of Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, that's what Martha does, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So they gathered for a celebration with the guests of honor, Jesus and Lazarus, a dead man who now lives, and the Savior of the world. Mary and Martha are there, the two sisters of Lazarus, and now the table is set for what God has for us this morning. But before we study, let's ask his help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to be in your word and to hear truth. Lord, we ask that you would be our guide as we see these things, these re remarkable things that you're going to do in Mary's life. Help us to learn from her today. Help us to grow. Help us to be matured with the kind of love that Mary has for you. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name this morning. Amen. First of all, in your sermon notes outline, notice this. Love is what inspires our outrageous generosity. In verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I've looked it up. I don't know what a nard is. Uh, if you know what nard is, you'll let me know. Uh, but it's a special ointment usually used for uh, the ceremonies of burying uh, people in the Eastern world there. Expensive ointment. It's a costly perfume, usually saved for the embalming of a person for burial. Judas, in a few verses, gives the value of about 300 denarii in verse 5. One denarii is about a day's wage. So 300 of them, that's most of a year's salary, isn't it? 
almost a whole year's wages. Can you imagine this kind of generosity and open-handedness? I mean, first of all, how many of us have a whole year's, of, you know, of our salary in savings somewhere? And so we spend way too much, don't we? But then to just take that, if you happen to have it, and then take it and give it to Jesus? This is precisely what she does. But we ask the question, why is she so generous? And it's quite straightforward. Because her brother was dead and now he was alive. Because her brother was dead, he's now alive. And what Mary is doing here is demonstrating her outrageous love for Jesus. Beloved, you can't demonstrate your love to someone through mere words. To demonstrate love, we need to do something about it. Words are nice, but the proof of love is seen through your sacrificial demonstration of love. I could say I love you to Kathy all day long, and I'm, you know, she'll probably get tired of hearing about it. She'd rather see me, you know, see me doing something in particular about it. Isn't that right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Words are nice, but the proof of love is seen through sacrificial demonstration of love. Mary clearly loves Jesus because of what Jesus had brought about in her brother's life and subsequently how that touched her life. Similarly, for all of us, we were all dead in our trespasses and sin. And now, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've now been made alive by his sheer grace toward you. As we read earlier, Ephesians 2, 2 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, we don't deserve that kind of kindness. I know I don't. I don't deserve another breath. And yet he continues to grant it. In that he has been rich toward us in grace and mercy, we need to be rich toward him through all that we are, all that we have, our resources, our time, our families, our very hearts. And I ask you, what have you done to demonstrate your love for Christ? Starting with this new year, we need to demonstrate our love for him through our outrageous generosity. I'm not just talking about cash. Love is what inspires our outrageous generosity. Years ago, Jeff and I were in the same church down in Granger, Indiana. And there was a, a man from India there. And because of his understanding of the gospel, his purpose in life was to find a way to get to America and to go through college and to get a business degree. And his goal was to, to buy as many gas stations in the greater South Bend area as he possibly could so that he could send all the money back to India for about 15 Christian schools that he independently financed. You guys, that's outrageous generosity. That was his whole purpose in life. Another friend of mine at Grace Church in Granger, he, um, 
you want to be a missionary, and he found that a lot of people were reluctant to support him to go on the mission field. So what he decided to do, he thought, well, I'm just, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to open up uh, an import car shop and uh, only work on German vehicles. And he opens up this car shop, and he makes a gazillion dollars, and now he can go on missions anytime he wants. And that was so successful, and he had other friends who wanted to do the same, so he then started a, a, an Asian import car shop. And they're still there to this day. You guys, this is, these are people who understand what Christ has done for them, and they're so moved out of incredible generosity because of who Jesus is and what he's done in their life. I look at our church. I don't know if you realize this, this little group that's in this room, do you know we're approaching half a million dollars of income total with our missions and our general budget? Do you realize that? Did, did you hear me? It's almost half a million dollars that this little group brings in. That's amazing. I know churches that are bigger than this who can't do as much. And so I know that God's already touched your heart on this. But for us, let's not shrink back. Let's, let's keep after it, right? Understanding that it's God's love for us that inspires our outrageous generosity. It's what inspired Mary to take it and she just pours it out on Jesus' feet. But secondly, devotion is what motivates our complete humility. Did you notice the humility associated with what Mary's action here? And Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair? What? Well, of course, for me, I don't have any hair, but that's a whole other issue. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Notice Mary's incredible act of humility. She anoints Jesus' feet and then wipes them off with her hair. Now, you guys, let's remind ourselves of Mary and Jesus' relationship. Way back in Luke chapter 10, this won't be on the screen, but listen closely. When we first run into Mary and Martha for the first time, in Luke 10, 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Do you know people like this? But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary, early on, as she encounters Jesus for the first time, was completely devoted to Jesus as she sat at his feet, listening to his teaching. But then Lazarus dies. And Mary and Martha had called for him to come. And he finally shows up four days later. And in John 11, it says that Mary is so distraught and disenchanted now with Jesus. 
she doesn't even come to Jesus when he arrives. That's what it says in John 11, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. That's what Martha does. I'm going to get in your face, Jesus, because you should have been here. But Mary remains seated in the house. I'm not going. You see what's going on here? I think she, I'm, I'm done. I devoted myself to listen to you. We call for you to come. You don't come. I'm out. You're not who you say you are at all. Later on in John eleven twenty eight, Martha goes as she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here is calling for you. Why aren't you coming? John eleven thirty two. now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell, where? At his feet. Saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Finally, Jesus calls for Mary and she comes and falls at his feet again. And now we're at a dinner party and she finds herself where? At the feet of Jesus once more. Jesus' feet. Notice how they would have been seated around the table. Again, this wasn't like your dining room table at your house. Likely a round or rectangular table. People would be on couches, cushions, if you will, laying down at table, usually on the left side because you don't eat with your left hand. You know what I'm talking about. You eat with your right hand in this culture. So you're laying down, so where are your feet? Your feet are behind you, extended, and there's people all the way around the table just like this, like a pinwheel with all these people kind of laying around the table. Can you picture it? And so his feet are right there. Mary doesn't wash everybody else's, just goes to his. She gets so low, she takes her hair, she washes his feet. Now, according to custom, feet washing in this culture was the most menial and debasing of jobs. Why? Why was it so low? Sandaled feet in the Middle East that had been walking through the sewer encrusted streets all day, perhaps all week long. Here, Mary washes Jesus' stinking and disgusting feet with her beautiful hair. Her humility is so extravagant that the whole house benefits from the fragrance that this particular act of kindness produces. And of course, for a woman, Scripture says that her hair is her glory. What incredible humility, what complete humility in every respect. Peter reminds us, and Peter knows this. As you recall, Peter didn't do very well at one point. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Oh, that we'd humble ourselves as Mary does here. Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. To such a degree, think about this, several places in the Gospel of John Whenever Mary is referred to, it'll say, we're talking about Mary, the one who anointed Jesus' feet. 
she became notorious because of this act of devotion. It's very rare that we see this kind of devotion in life these days in our culture with how we treat people. I know of one couple where in our community where she's got MS and for the last 20 plus years, her husband has doted on her, lovingly, graciously cleaning up after her, washing her. Beautiful, sacrificial love. And you guys, isn't that how it should look? Devotion is what motivates our complete humility. We've seen Jesus' devotion to us. We see an example of it here with Mary. Ought we not do the same? Devotion is what motivates our complete humility. Love is what inspires our outrageous generosity. But lastly here, commitment is what energizes our enduring faith. Commitment. Here we see Mary's love for Jesus is what inspires her generosity. Mary's devotion to Jesus motivates her complete humility. And her commitment to Jesus is what energizes her enduring faith. It is clear that she genuinely believes in Jesus with all of her heart. Earlier she had had her doubts, but not anymore. She was at his feet before, and now Jesus had answered her prayer, and she finds herself at his feet again. And I ask you, where are you? Are you at the feet of Christ? Do you really believe who Jesus is and understand what he's done for you? Perhaps your situation is pretty rough right now. But the reality is that whatever you are going through, it all could be worse. God is still upholding you and helping you, even though things may not be going very well. But for those who truly believe, they will most certainly find themselves demonstrating belief, humility, and generosity in the midst of even the most difficult of circumstances. I've seen it. Those who truly believe will most certainly do. For Mary here, she is doing this amazing, generous, and loving thing. And then one of Jesus' close followers, Judas, starts complaining about what she's doing and how it is that such, this is such a great waste, Mary. But nothing's going to stop her. Nothing's going to stop her now because her commitment to Jesus is energized by her enduring and unshakable faith. Many of you know that I went through a pretty severe medical setback a couple months ago. And uh, at a couple of points, I wasn't sure I was going to make it. But by God's grace, I'm here. As my liver was debating on whether it wanted to keep functioning or not and stay with me, there were a few times when I came to a place of despair, but then I was reminded that Jesus still loved me and that I was ultimately in his hands. I was in his hands for him to do as he pleased. And again, by God's sheer grace, I'm still here for his purposes. Beloved, commitment is what energizes our enduring faith that we will endure whatever it takes to keep cruising, walking with him. Now, to demonstrate how incredible Mary's response to Jesus is, we don't have to go very far to understand its significance. How so? All we have to do is simply compare Mary to Judas. First of all here, 
while Mary quietly serves, Judas complains. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's a crabber. Crabbing at things. Took something that was beautiful and awesome and now makes it disgusting. But secondly, while Mary freely gives, Judas is full of greed. In verse 6, we're told he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He's, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He doesn't care about the poor. Who does Judas care about? Himself. We all know this. We all know what a snake looks like. But thirdly, while Mary demonstrates humility, Judas is self-centered. And having charge in the money bag, we're told in verse 6, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is clearly just looking out for his own interests. He wants to pad his wallet a little bit. For his, further his financial options. But fourthly, while Mary is full of faith, Judas clearly doesn't believe in Jesus at all. How could he? You understand what I'm saying here? Mary has faith in Jesus. Judas, he doesn't believe in who this guy is. Judas doesn't believe in Jesus at all. And so here we see the apex of Judas's complete disenchantment with Jesus. You can imagine Judas' thoughts here. Well, I thought you'd be a great political leader and I'd be the treasurer of a new regime. But since you robbed me of my ambitions, I'll now rob you of your life. Watch me. And lastly here, while Mary loves Jesus with all her heart, Judas obviously hates him. He doesn't just disagree with Jesus. He despises him. The ultimate tragedy here is that Judas doesn't even know how lost he is. And maybe you could be equally as lost as you're sitting there. Arthur W. Pink writes this, the natural man is utterly devoid of the principle of love for God. He quotes Jonathan Edwards who solemnly expressed it, the heart of the sinner is as devoid of love for God as a corpse is of vital heat. As the Lord Jesus expressly declared, I know you that you have not the love of God in you. Arthur Pink says, reader, you may have a mild temper, an amiable disposition, a reputation for kindness and generosity, but if you've never been born again, you have no more real love in your heart for God than Judas had for the Savior. What a frightful caricature. Judas, who was so close to Jesus, ended up becoming the absolute enemy of Christ. Jesus finally responds in verse 7. Jesus says, you can imagine him looking at Judas as he says it, leave her alone. Back off, dude. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, Judas, but you don't always have me, and you're obviously clueless on it. You'll always have poor people for you to attend to, Judas, but I'm leaving soon. 
In the end, Judas is rebuked by Jesus while Mary is affirmed by Jesus. Mary understands that time is short. Mary is generous, humble, believing, and loving while Judas is discontent, arrogant, unbelieving, and hateful. Where are you in that spectrum? Beloved, the sacrifices of love. Love is what inspires our outrageous generosity. Devotion is what motivates our complete humility. Commitment is what energizes our enduring faith. Our love, devotion, and commitment to Jesus will always lead us to quietly serve him and to freely give with complete humility and enduring faith. As we move to the Lord's table this morning, I remind you now a third time of this passage found in Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy, oh, he's loaded with it. And he wants to dump it on you. Because of the great love with which he loved us, you've been so loved. Even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, no better than Lazarus, we were dead as a doornail. He has made us alive together with Christ. Wow. By grace, you've been saved. Here at Oakwood Bible Church, we have an open communion table. By this is meant that all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior are so very welcome to join us at table as we celebrate the risen Christ. The two elements of the bread and the cup, the bread which represents the broken body of Christ in our behalf, and the cup which represents his shed blood for us in full payment of all of our sin once and for all. If you have children with you today, make sure they understand the gospel. In other words, that they've made a profession of faith, and we invite them to join us uh, freely as we share around the Lord's table. If not, if they haven't put their faith and trust in Christ, uh, let the elements pass for them until such a time as they understand what they're participating in. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, issues this admonition to all who consider partaking in the bread and the cup. In Corinthians 11.27, he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There are at least two warnings here. The first would be partaking in an unworthy manner. Perhaps you profess Christ as your Savior in the past, but are currently living in outright sinful rebellion against him. If this is the case, I encourage you to examine your heart before God before partaking in something that you are holding in contempt with how you're living right now. If you're not willing to make things right with him in this moment, If you're not willing to repent, then I would encourage you to let the elements pass until such time as you have made things right with God in your heart. But better yet, even right now, in this moment, make things right with God through confession, repentance, and commitment, and then freely join us. The other possibility is that you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you're an unbeliever. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Maybe this is the day that you do so. 
If this is the case, if you have never believed on him, I encourage you again to let the elements pass as a witness to you. You haven't given your life to Christ. We don't want to ask you to participate in something that you don't even believe in through hypocrisy. But even better for you would be for you to turn from the direction you've been going in your life and to turn to faith in Christ, even right now, in this moment. Receive him as Lord and Savior and invite Christ into your heart and life right now. Don't wait a moment longer. And then please freely join us in this remembrance for the first time. We'd love to have you join us. As the elements of the bread and cup are passed, please note that both elements are contained in two cups. The two cups are stacked together. So when you reach, make sure you get two little cups. Otherwise, you'll be missing one of the elements. As we prepare to partake of the bread and the cup together, please hold both elements as you are served. We will then thank the Lord for the bread and the cup separately. So at this time, I'd like to invite the elders and deacons to come forward to serve. And as they come, please take this time of preparation to be in prayer, examining your own heart before God, seeking his forgiveness and deliverance, renewing your commitment to him, and remembering with thanksgiving his sacrifice for you on the cross as he paid your penalty for all of your sins once and for all. Please pray aloud with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Apostle Paul has written to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I have asked Elder John Rusa to pray for the bread which was broken for us. Would you bow with me? 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The bread we are about to eat symbolizes the body of Christ, who was crucified as a propitiation for the sins of all mankind. So, Lord, we are forever indebted to you. The human, sinless sacrifice who died on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to God. And it's because of him we pray. Amen. Please take and eat. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I've asked Elder Tim Peterson to pray for the cup which was poured out for us. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, once again, we, we thank you for time to pause and remember and to give thanks uh, for um, this amazing thing that you've done uh, for
for us as your creation. Jesus, Lord, uh, we thank you for your sacrifice, our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend. And uh, for the blood that was shed uh, for us on the cross, we pause to uh, remember you and to give you thanks. And uh, we thank you so much for your dear love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please stand as we close our service today. Before we pray, uh, just a reminder that uh, the elders and deacons will be available after the service up front for anyone who needs prayer this morning. If you are in need of prayer, we'd be glad to meet with you and pray with you. And then secondly, I just want to extend a a huge thanks to the board of Oakwood and uh, you as a congregation as you've endured the last two months. And I want to especially thank our staff, Jeff and Nick and Wendy and, and our children's uh, workers and um, holding everything together. Um, I am truly blessed and so very thankful. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious goodness to us. We thank you for this time of worship as we've come to you and opened our hearts before you to hear from you. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us to take these things with us as we go from this place, that we might understand and appreciate the love that you have for us and how in turn we should respond with the same kind of love. As your word says, Lord, we love because you first loved us. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your presence with us today. Give us a fantastic week, we ask. In your son's wonderful and awesome name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You are dismissed.